You're listening to locally produced programming created in KUNV Studios on public radio, KUNV 91.5. The content of this program does not reflect the views or opinions of 91.5 Jazz and More, the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, or the Board of Regents of the Nevada System of Higher Education. Welcome to The Pivot Point, where we talk about all things pivot, all things business, and all things Vegas. I'm your host, Bardia. Let's get the ball rolling. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Pivot Point. I got a special treat for you guys today. I have a man of many talents and many businesses. His name is Kevin Bechat. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Badi. It's an honor and a pleasure, and you you really are overblowing this. Thank you. Yeah, no, no problem. So you have extensive business experience across a diverse range of industries, uh, including real estate investing, technology, and dental group administration. Uh, can you briefly just tell us about your professional story? Sure. Um, I was in college. And uh, I was, uh, actually, one of the things you didn't mention was I, I was also in, in high fashion. Yes, for, for YSL, for a number of years. But uh, I was in college, and this is 1986. And in those days, um, IT as, as, a, as a business function didn't really exist. It, it was just the beginning of, you know, the computers in those days were 8086s. Um, so I, I was doing an engineering degree, electronics and computing, but also, I, I would like to refer to myself as a fashion victim. I, I liked <laughs> high fashion. So um, when, when I uh, graduated, I was working for one of these big fashion houses and uh, a friend who was um, computerizing um, inventory management for YSL, Yves Saint Laurent, but Rive Gauche uh, part of it, which is really the high end. Um, he, he came to me, he said he'd found a job and he, uh, the company need to replace him and would I be interested so that's how I got into actually working uh, with um, big fashion brand and also computing because in those days and again I'm going back for a long time uh, databases uh, were very limited you had Ashton Tate's D-Base 2 and uh, you know, some of the older list I, I don't think you have anybody maybe some of your lecturers would know who, who, what, what those pro- programs are so yes. they, we, we uh, the program been written in that so I, I, I got a good feel for what 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 they were trying to do so we uh, I was with Yves Saint Laurent for about four and a half years um, and then went to Fendi but what I did f- with Yves Saint Laurent was kind of key because I really learned um because he was operating in such a niche market, I really began to understand what marketing is all about and um, the use of IT in marketing and why and, and the relationship in marketing with the rest of the business. So that was a good learning ground. And then I went to another uh, fashion house at Fendi and I was, with them, I was with them for about a year and they went out of business as a, as a franchise. Um, so... Uh, I've told this story a few times. I, a friend who was working for Ford um, at that time, we, uh, they were uh, producing those white vans that you see, the transit vans. Mm-hmm. Um, and he approached me and he said, look, we're programming robots. And this is 1990, 1991. Um, we're programming robots. 
um, are you interested? So anyway, I went down to uh, Southampton in, in England and the Ford plant and they, they built those transit vans from scratch. And where they start is the plates uh, for the base of the van, which sits on top of the chassis. And you weld these things together using spot welding uh, robots. And I got involved in programming that, and the whole thing was very interesting and took me back to my roots, and I decided this was much more fun than the fashion industry. And most people say, well, what are you talking about? But it was, it was, because you really got to understand the the functions that um, computing and and, and, uh, programming and and IT plays in, in everyday life and manufacturing business. So, once that project was over, it took about six months, um, I went and joined um, a friend who had a computer company. And uh, you know, within a year, I bought him out and um, went from there to, and then I started one of these dot-coms in 1999, which <laughs> like most of the dot-coms um, didn't survive. Well, it was still working, but I had an opportunity to come to the, to the States and uh, my wife is a dentist so we lived in California for a year I got involved in real estate I, those days I we bought a piece of land I had it built sold it made good money and then flipped a couple of other pieces of property so oh, I said this is a good game mm-hmm. and my wife was just being a dentist and I got into real estate and this is 2003 um, you know, real estate business was really good in Vegas so was dentistry Mm -hmm. so we put everything in a van and drove up here um, in in a U-Haul van and uh, the rest as they say is history so and then that's how we got here that's that's awesome so talking a little bit about the technology part I feel like that was really big for your just like whole entrepreneurial entrepreneurial roots so your company, because um, my technology knowledge cuts off at about a VHS tapes, floppy disks, and cassette tapes. Uh, so when you lived in the UK, your computer company grew to the ninth fastest growing company there of all any, any industry. Yep. So how do you feel that this honed you for the future? Sure. Um, Virgin Atlantic, Richard Branson's company, um, sponsored a program. Uh, this is a sort of early 90s. They wanted to see who were the... Um, who were the companies, the future, because IT was really hitting in those days. So they did. They monitored the, from companies' house, which is equivalent to the IRS, if you will, because they get all the um, companies' revenues. And, and they compiled a list of, the, they called them the Fast Track 100. And we were recognized as the ninth fastest growing company in, two, in 1997 uh, for the work we'd done between 1993 and 1996. And it was really exciting. I ended up going to Richard Branson's house, sat across the table wow. from him. We, the top 10 sat on the same table as him for dinner. And it was kind of exciting times. Um, but to, to answer your question, um, what, I'd, what I had learned in, in Yves Saint Laurent for, uh, for the previous four or five years was really marketing. You know, mm-hmm. what gets people kind of uh, to, to buy? Uh, so those skills uh, were useful. But when I got to um, the computer company, and it was my own, um, obviously, you know, nobody knew of my company. So, you know, Yves Saint Laurent was an you know, international brand. So I, I need to come up uh, with, with ideas how we can get out there. So this was, um, this was kind of interesting. And 
again, I don't know if your audience is old enough. You know, <laughs> PCs in the 90s were terrible. They were so unreliable. And any man and his dog could set up a PC company, and they did. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, my, our approach, or my approach, you know, was completely, when I said different, we we moved, we went into the PC uh, business from from a different um, angle. We were selling um, cards. These are RS two three two cards and and uh, cards that you, in, you put inside a PC to get um, information like, like digital I/O cards, analog to di- uh, to, con- analog to digital converter cards. This is for instrumentation. Mm-hmm. So if you're measuring the amount of gas going through a pipe. That information is analog. So you wanted to be able to convert that to digital to use it, so dump it into Excel or, or whatever. So we were selling these cards, and we, they were highly profitable. We were buying them for $9 each, and we were selling them for 50 pounds. So we were making wow. a killing on this. Um, but it was a very small market. Uh, right. you know, the, it topped at about, I don't know, 80,000 pounds a year at best. So it was a small market. So some of these people that we were selling to approached us to, to ask us if we could manufacture the, uh, the machines for them as well, the, the actual PCs. So we went and found small frame computers um, that the size of a book so we could put these cards in and make that work for them. And that kind of made us, force us into the PC market. And then when we went full-blown uh, PC offering networking and everything else, we found that these machines are really un- unreliable. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't us, everybody else in the same boat. So... This is, I think, was one of our six, uh, couple of the uh, reasons why we were successful. One, I uh, made the decision uh, to go and become an ISO 9000 credited company. ISO 9000 is a kind of standard that is used most m- all around the world for a company's quality control. And... Um, I think they have the equivalent here. I don't know. I haven't been in manufacturing, but I think they have this. Um, but basically forces you to put systems in place and document those systems. So if there's ever a failure anywhere in, in, within the pr- uh, process or in the company, somebody else can pick up and run with it. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, that was kind of important. So we, we systemized the process and, and, and the company. And then the other thing was because of these, we needed to, uh, have have a good uh, reputation and um, because these machines were you know, so unreliable especially in you know you put you with assembler computer send it off to, the, to to a customer by the time they receive it you know your UPS guy had thrown it around yeah. so cards would pop out of their slots they would break all sorts of issues so we made a decision that we were going to look after the customers by just Making going above and beyond. So an example of this would be if you go and buy a TV from um, Best Buy mm-hmm. and you pay your $500 for this TV, you take it home and you expect this to work. If it doesn't work, and you, you say, oh, shit, I have to deal with this problem now. But if you take that t- uh, TV back to Best Buy and they say, hey, no problem, Here's a new one, and here's a gift card for your troubles. From you're going to become a lifetime customer because right. they 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 went above and beyond. So you, you think, okay, if I if there's ever an issue, they're going to help me out with this. So we, we kind of took that approach, mm-hmm. and the combination of these two really helped us kind of get um, 
you know, go up the ranking. And we went from revenues of literally, you know, 80,000 pounds a year to by the time I, I, we finished was, we were doing something in the region of 18 million pounds in revenues. Wow. So it was, a, it was a big, steep growth. Right. And I imagine these same exact techniques helped you with your general practices. Um, yes, to some extent. I mean, certainly the marketing side helped mm -hmm. knowing how, how to, uh, the first practice that we had, this is in, two th we, we, we bought the office in December 2003 and revenues were between, I don't know, 18 and 19,000 dollars a month, which you, you know, if, if you were on a practice, just, you cannot uh, work there. Mm -hmm. Um, to the extent that my wife had to get a second job, as a dentist, had to get a job elsewhere to just gotcha. pay for the bills. But within five months, we had taken the revenues to you know five times that. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, I thought this is a good business uh, model because I was I was in real estate, and f I'd flipped a couple of homes. But I thought, hang on a minute, flipping dental offices is actually much more profitable because you actually can make good money while you're building the practice mm -hmm. to, to a point where you can sell it and uh, you cannot do that in a house you know if a house is waiting to, while you're remodeling you're actually losing money because you know you either pay mortgage or you're not collecting rent or whatever the case may be but mm -hmm. with with a dental office you know if you if you run it well enough you can actually make money as, as you as you grow the practice and i, I would be had a um, goal of getting the practice to seven figures and then we would sell and I did that four times uh, before wow. we finally sold the, the, the practice. And yeah. I don't know how much you can reveal on this, but how do you see the dental industry in Vegas changing in the next few years? Well, uh, de dentistry as a business has gone through massive changes. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not just here. Um, it's nationally. Um, you know, people in Wall Street and uh, have sat down and decided this is a recession-proof business, which is worth between 160 and 100 billion, 180 billion dollars a year, and they want a piece of it. And uh, about a year ago, this time, um, I was looking at figures. There's over a trillion dollars in private equity money available for to acquire dental practices. So when you have that amount of money. Um, people people want to go out right. and acquire because they think dentistry is going to grow more and I kind of agree with that because penetration in terms of uh, as a market penetration you know everybody goes to the dentist but only 40% of people go to the dentist regularly so um, if you look at cell phone penetration it's like 80% or whatever mm -hmm. so um, you know industry analysts are sitting there going and say, yeah, this is going to grow. And I kind of agree with that because the more people realize how many um, sim you know, uh, systemic diseases are connected with your gum and your teeth and how you eat and um, all those are a quick example. People who have teeth tend to live seven years longer by average. So when people realize these, you know, the, the actual usefulness of your teeth and oral health, you know, I do think this, this market is going to grow. So um, to talk about Vegas as, as, a, as, a, as a city or the valley, um, it, it's, it's, the whole thing has been magnified because uh, if you look at the valley, it's kind of an isolated place in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a really good 
a testing ground for a lot of these large, what are called DSOs. These are called dental support organizations where they want a piece of this. And, you know, some of them now have, you know, 17, 1800 uh, dental practices and revenues are in excess of $4 billion a year. So these are big companies. I mean, these are, you, you know, uh, these are, and with a lot of um, people working with them, you know, and, and this is where it's going to. So, uh, there is a lot of um, interest in in having part of Las Vegas because it's growing and, and all those. So what we've seen in the past, uh, since 2016, when I really noticed this, was a lot of these bigger companies or even smaller companies um, out of California and, and, and Arizona coming here, setting up shop, mm-hmm. trying to have multiple practices. So yes, that 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 is. Uh, uh, I kind of I, I'm not too hard about this. Some of it right. is good, but some of it, what we're seeing is you know, traditionally you go to a dentist and he'd be your dentist for you know 20 years and you know he'd be a nice guy and the place would smell like clove and you know you'd know the office manager. So all of that's going out and it's becoming much more a retail product. Where mm-hmm. It's like going to you know a shoe shoe shop. You know you right. you, you you make a decision of where to go on what you see as you were yeah so that's that's kind of changing it's changing nationally but it's definitely changing if you look every corner now in town every street corner there is at least one maybe four dental offices yes as the city has expanded so much so talking a little bit about your real estate ventures i'm just curious why real estate why not i mean clearly you saw the potential in it but why not something like stocks (laughs) well you know, I I have this 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 uh, my dad. That, that's probably the reason you know, mm-hmm. from where, where I come from. You know, you always buy real estate. You know, you buy and then you never sell. That's yes. that's the mentality you uh-huh. buy and hold because that's how you grow wealth. Um, so so that was part of it. And 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 anybody I looked around, uh, even even my computer days, people who who were actually because you have two things: you have wealth and you have income, right? And one of the best ways to build wealth is through real estate because that wealth can produce income for you as well. Whereas if you buy stock, unless you're buying you know, dividend-paying stock, um, it's, it's, a lot of it is speculative that you're hoping that it will go up. And also, you're not really in charge. Whereas with real estate, you have a lot more saying than in stock. And also, um, the other thing I looked at, you know, if you sit down and talk to stockbrokers and people who, who are keen on securities, they say, oh, if you look at historic, um, you know, stocks have gone up um, more than real estate. Except they're not telling you the full truth. Say if you buy a house for, let's say, $100,000 and you're collecting rent at a rate of $500 a month, so you're making you know, your 6% annually on that. But the price of the home has also gone up. So these people, I'm not telling you the food, they accompany the price of the home with the price of the stock, but they're discounting that 6% that you're making annually. And if you compound that over the years, mm-hmm. it, will, it will just wipe the floor with stocks. So right. th- this is why, I, 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 you know, for, as I said, income was coming from dentistry, building wealth comes from real estate and that's how I saw it it's kind of very simplistic view but uh, that's that's why I did that 
Right, exa- exactly. The reason I ask is we know that Las Vegas has expanded so much in the past few decades or even just the past few years. Um, I myself have seen these communities, these homes being built all the way in Lake Las Vegas towards Boulder City, all the way to the foot of Mount Charleston. I mean, it's, it's really crazy how much I've seen Las Vegas grow just in, sure. in my lifetime. Sure. How do you see these factors changing the real estate market in town? I mean, I, I, think, I think this is great. Because mm-hmm. seriously, I, I really do like Vegas. I think it's, 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 it's a great place. And we offer a lot than a lot of other places. And you don't have the traffic and the expenses of, of California. But as this city grows, like any, uh, like any other uh, place, you, know, you need to um, look at infrastructure. And one of those uh, worrying things is, is water. Uh, uh, this is on everybody's mind. Uh, and, and I think this could, you know, this could be a factor, although I've been assured that, you know, they're looking at bringing water from Mississippi River right. and, and the north and so on. So that, that could be a factor. But, and, and I think, I don't know if, you, if you're going with this, uh, but I'm going to try to jump the gun here. Traditionally, Vegas, you know, if you go back 20 years, you had the big employers, the big hotels, uh, who, who employed hundreds of thousands of people, and you had lots of mom and pop shop type businesses, small, what are called small businesses, you know, five and below. And, um, and then you have this m- m- massive employers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and w- w- what we need, and I've always said this, we need more medium-sized businesses, you know, from, you know, f- five to 99 you know, or, or, or 99 to 400 those kind of businesses are, are the actual the engines of the economy because those are the guys who will try and compete with the bigger guys and they employ more and they'll do more medium-sized businesses medium-sized and i think that this is what we want if you go to southern california you will see a number of you know, it's just only need to just drive down the 15 in california or 90 or any of those uh, um, roads and you will see so many companies which you know are, are of a substantial size they're not huge but they're employing people and paying them you know six six figure salaries here we don't have enough of those and i think that's what we need um, and as the come as the population grows that's what we're going to need absolutely so you you did actually touch on a topic i would i would love to get to um and um i'll give some data for anyone who's interested so a recent study at the unlv center for business and economic research found that the total number of people moving to nevada surged last year over ninety-six thousand people wow and that was measured by people surrendering their licenses to the nevada dmv um of course we all know the states with the greatest um migration uh, the highest was California, but uh, people also moved in significant numbers from Florida and Texas. Um, and the most interesting part for me was that people are also, like you said, bringing their businesses and they're contributing to the business landscape of Las Vegas. So going back to what you said about business, uh, medium-sized businesses, how do we encourage growth of these types of businesses? Is there an evolutionary process behind small to medium to large? Well, yeah, of course there is. I mean, mm-hmm. um, most people who, who, who are business people and entre- entrepreneurs, you know, they go into this field mm-hmm. because they want to grow. If, because if they want to just have a you know, limited um, company, they'd go and get a job mm-hmm. because the, you know, there would be a ceiling to, to work with what they could earn and, and where they would go. So it, there are a number of things that, that, that uh, are, and, and probably one of the most important was, it, more, most important thing is, you know, 
funding. You know, I think small businesses, you know, the life line to these uh, is having funding. And I think if we put what's happened in the past year aside with what's going on with interest rates and so on, um, Nevada's always been a really, I, I, I never had difficulty finding um, f- funding within the local banks and local mm-hmm. um uh, credit unions and so on and that this, they've always been you know going above and beyond the other things that we don't have you know the tax systems that is exist in california right. that's also a good thing and and us being a uh, this kind of state that we are regulations and red tape you know these 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 could stump the growth of company you talk to people from california um, and and they will tell you there's so much red tape in you know doing things um we do have some of this and you do need regulations for safety and so on i mean i'm not one of those people mm-hmm. who says you know mm-hmm. there needs to be regulations and there needs to be but sometimes red tape can can stumble growth and then r&d and i think another thing that we are doing here in in the state is r&d and there's there's um UNLV is a Kind of good example. I don't know if you remember a few years back, uh, Governor Sandoval um, was uh, encouraging funding to come from Reno to here. Right. You know, so, right. so all of that was good. All of that was good, and all of those things are positive things for the uh, for the state and and hopefully people coming here and investing and building. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So I have some fun questions for you. Sure, if you like to answer them, um, and you can take your time with this one if you like. Um, are you a leader or are you a follower? And do you think one can turn into the other? Um, hopefully I'm a leader. And, uh, and and I have to be honest, I wasn't one. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I think leaders have to make a conscious decision to say, okay, I'm going to be a leader mm-hmm. and I'm going to lead. And these are going to be the, st- the, the standards that I go with. And the standards that you set will determine how successful you are. And and, and and yes, yes, definitely people who are followers can become leaders. And, and there's definitely room for, ev- everybody can be a leader. You don't have to be yes. the, the shouting type and, you know, no, that's not, that's not being a leader. A leader is determining where it's going and making sure everybody understands where they have to go and mm-hmm. how to follow. You know, yes. you, you don't have to be, you know, the guy who shouts and tells people what to do. And then <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. What do you think about the other way around? Leaders turning into followers. Do you think that ever happens? I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it happens. Mm-hmm. And, and, and uh, um, there are, there are, there are, especially as, as, as I get, you know, as uh, I'm looking at, you know, I'm, I'm 60 and I'm looking at, you know, <laughs> next five years. Uh, yes, <laughs> and there is a good chance that if I don't want to be in that position of being a leader, mm-hmm. uh, I'd much rather uh, as I get older. But if uh, I'd much rather let somebody else do that. But you can still be a leader, um, but it doesn't have to be um, what's the word the the lead. What's the, how do I explain? You don't have to be the guy who who's pushing all the time. Yes, you can be a leader. You can set example. You can set tone in, in how the business goes, and and let others follow you in in what you. But you know, in in the pecking order, you you don't have to be first. You can go second, third, or fourth. You know, and, that, and, exactly. and I think that's what people take. You know, certainly, me, I'm looking at my future. I, I don't want 
the burden, you, you know. You, right, you, right. You, you want to, because uh, I think I paid my dues over the years. So. Yeah, exactly. I think it's so interesting that you bring about the idea of different points of your life. Sure. Like I myself, as, as a student, probably fall more into the follower. I see myself as a leader in, I like to see myself as a leader in other things that I do, taking initiative. But followership is really important, I think, for like things like mentorship, you know, so the the idea of constantly always learning, I think leaders could always have a follower side to them sure. or something like that. You know, they can always be learning from the next person or the next invention or the next, um, you know, mentor. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so just closing out the show here, what advice would you give to a new entrepreneur student or even to your younger self? What would you say if what, you would have liked to have known uh, years ago? Um, don't, don't be lazy. Right. I, every time I, look, I every time I look at you know the, the time because I, I mentioned to you I I was very lucky that at the time this is the nineties when I was in my early twenties and in, in, uh, oh sorry mid twenties and the, the opportunities were that if that if I had um, kind of not been lazy and trying to find out more and trying read more and try and discover more about um you know where, where where the trends are where things are going i would have been a lot more quote unquote successful i mean both monetary and 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 having the satisfaction of you know thinking i i, I did something and i made a difference but laziness is is mm -hmm. is the, <laughs> and by laziness i don't mean you know just missing lectures and, and things. no mm -hmm. you know follow it follow what's going on be proactive in in what's happening right. as opposed to just waiting for something to ha fall on your lap you know, you know what i mean uh, which goes back to what you were saying about being a leader being going after it, making sure that see yourself as a leader i mean i think that's that's key and crucial and don't be lazy. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I always struggle with, you know, the idea of enjoying my youth, mm. things like that. But I also have to think about my future a lot of the time. And it, and it really, it can weigh you down, but I feel like it's a proactive thing to do. Sure. It's a really important thing to do as well. So um, I want to thank you so much for being here today, Kevin. I had an amazing, stimulating conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Well, thank you. That was really fun. I enjoyed it. All the best with the show and uh, hope to see you soon. Thank you so much. Awesome. And anyone who is listening, uh, remember you can always find us wherever you find your podcasts on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or uh, any other platforms as well. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Thank you all for listening to The Pivot Point. You can follow us at Pivot Point UNLV on Twitter, all one word, and hope you enjoyed the show.